Hey, if you guys have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 18. And uh, we're going to continue our series on that verse. I don't think it means what you think it means. And uh, we deal with a verse that is, again, a verse that's really well loved. And we struggle with ripping it out of its context and making it mean what we want it to mean instead of allowing it to mean what the Bible wants it to mean. And, and I begin with this by acknowledging that in the scriptures, when it comes to prayer, the Bible offers some amazing and wonderful promises. Like this, Matthew chapter 21, verse 22. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. That is an amazing promise. John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, 7. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My question this morning is, does Matthew 18, 18 through 20, fit into one of these wonderful prayer promises? Listen to what it says. I assure you, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Verse 19, again, I assure you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among you too. Does Matthew 18, verse 20 specifically, apply to your prayer meeting? Well, yes and no you'll find that it is a prayer promise, but if you look at the context, it's one that occurs in a very particular context. One of the things that's great about looking at Matthew 18, 19, and 20 is that Matthew 17 comes right before it, and it becomes very clear in Matthew 18, 17 that the church is gathering. We have to ask ourselves the question, what is the church gathering for? Is it for prayer? Not specifically, Is it for worship? Nope. Is it a fellowship? Nope, it's not that either. Is it for evangelism? No. When we pray to God, when we worship God, when we fellowship with each other, and when we do evangelism, we know that God is present in those times. So that makes the assurance that God is with us wherever two or three are gathered in His name almost, well, duh. It's directed to a very particular moment. And we know that God is present with us already in times of prayer, worship, fellowship, and evangelism. So what is this context? The context makes it very clear that this is not a promise for any prayer that you want to pray. This is not a blank check prayer that any believer can fill in the blank for whatever they want. It's a specific kind of prayer. And in this context, we see that God is both endorsing and blessing our efforts to live according to His guidelines to try to rescue believers who have gone astray. He's talking about discipline. And by the way, if you are a disciple, discipline should not be a dirty word to you. You know, if you're a football player, 
you will never develop uh, in the discipline of football without the discipline of running suicides. That's what they call those sprints that you have. You run five yards and back and then 10 yards and back and then 20 yards and back all the way down the football field. And you do that to de- develop physically in the discipline of being a football player. Discipleship and discipline go together. And so the Bible's telling us in this prayer promise that when our intentions are linked to His, He'll empower our obedience, even if it means we have to get into a very difficult conversation. How many of you want to confront a dear friend on an issue of sin? Like, and if you're too eager to do that, you're disqualified. Okay? Like, it's, like your motivation is really important here. So here's a few words about discipline. When we talk about discipline in the context of the church, it is always, it is always specifically and explicitly about forgiveness, about restoration, and about reconciliation. That's our motive. We don't want to be mean. We don't want to be ungracious. We don't want to be unmerciful. So if you are in Matthew 18, I want you to just look at how Jesus frames this conversation. Okay, If we look at Matthew chapter 18 in verses uh, 10 through 14, I'm not going to read it, <clears throat> but he tells the story about the shepherd who has 100 sheep, and he knows where 99 of them are, but guess what's happened? One of them has left the reservation. So the faithful shepherd leaves the 99 who are secure and goes after the one. In verse 14, says, In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one should perish. It gives this idea of you, find, you go, you suffer hardship to rescue that one and bring him back. So he has this conversation about what do we do if there's a lost sheep? Okay, It's not a lost wolf. In that case... You don't go looking for the wolf, but a lost sheep. You go and you look for him. That kind of raises a question for Peter beginning uh, in verse, oh, where is it? 22. If we're going to rescue these lost people, like the reason they might be lost is like there's a problem. So Peter goes, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody if they've sinned against me? And I, I, I really don't like this. And if it wasn't church, I don't think I can say I hate something, but I, I really hate this. Because, like, forgiving people, is that easy or is that hard? Depends on kind of how egregious the violation is. Like, if you've really been violated, is that easy for you to forgive someone? Well, the bad news is, on top of forgiveness being kind of difficult, Jesus now tells us we have to do math. Because he says, how often should you forgive someone? You remember his answer? 70 times 7. And it's not, it's not addition or subtraction. You've got to do stinking multiplication. And so, like, forgiveness is hard enough without the math. And that's the context that Jesus is coaching all of this. We search for the lost sheep, we forgive unlimitedly, and then he tells a parable in verses 23 through 35 about this unmerciful servant who owes a million dollars, so to speak, and that debt gets forgiven by the king. But then that same, same guy finds his buddy that owes him 100 bucks, and he throws him into debtor's prison. God says, don't be like that person. Don't be like that person. And it's in the midst of these themes, lost sheep, 70 times 7, unmerciful servant, that Jesus now provides instruction on providing accountability to how we live together as believers. So, being a forgiving, reconciling, and restoring church does not dissuade us from the responsibility to practice accountability. I think that's what makes this question kind of pop in its context, is he's talking about all this stuff, and he says, oh, and by the way, 
when your brother sins, if you see your brother sin, you got to talk to him. The problem is, you know, if I see Ken doing something, I see it. (laughs) And if you've grown up in church long enough, I don't go and talk to him about it. I go to Josh and I talk about it. I'm like, yeah, man, hey, we need to pray for Ken. And like I, I put it in the form of a prayer request, which it's still gossip. So now not only is Ken in sin, I'm in sin for watching Ken sin and now talking about his sin to somebody else that has no business being a part of it because this was a private thing. Now I've taken a private thing and I've made it something else. So now, now Josh has got to come to me and say, hey, bro, you don't need the gossiping. I know you kind of formed it in the form of a prayer request, but it's still sin. It's just a sin that we think is like acceptable. That's an okay sin. No, it's sin. So he's telling us, guys, you need accountability. I need accountability. And the best time to like go to someone and say, hey, uh, David, I give you permission to speak into my life is when there's nothing going on. Because when there's something going on, the last thing you want is what? Accountability. So make the commitment down. And here's the point of application for the whole sermon. Some of you need to find somebody in the church that you can go and say, dude, if I mess up, I am telling you, come talk to me. Do it now. Don't wait till the fire gets turned on. And so here's, here's the point. When we talk about discipline, it is not our job to punish. Punishment, Jesus took care of that on the cross. Our job is to hold accountable and to restore. But the problem is, man, it, if you want to be restored, you have to, you have to repent. We can't restore you if you're holding on to a sin that you want to bring back in here because you're going to mess everything up. And we're not talking about a little white lie. We're talking about gross violations that are clearly not in line with Scripture. So a couple things here that we're going to see as we read through this passage. Uh, A couple quick points. Um, When we talk about this whole process of, of understanding this prayer promise, what is it really talking about? The first point is this. God glorifying... Brother rescuing correction is authorized by God himself. We didn't make this up. I mean, like if we were going to make rules for how we do church, this issue in Matthew 18 would not be in there. It's not an issue of human intelligence. It's not a human idea. This is Jesus saying, guys, you need to take accountability seriously. It's authorized by God. Look at verse 19. He says, again, I assure you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter and you pray for it, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. This is authorized by God. Verse 18, which is kind of the whole section, 18, 19, and 20, verse 18 begins with a truly, truly, which is a way for Jesus to go, pay attention. What I'm about to say is very important. Well, what's he wanting us to pay attention to? The promise in verse 19 that if two agree, it'll be done. God will do it. That's what God is authorizing. Now, here's the thing I want you to to recognize is um, disciple and discipline go hand in hand. As a matter of fact, where discipline goes out the window, discipleship disappears. You cannot have discipleship without discipline. They they go together. it's, It's necessary. And it goes together so well that it's actually a part of the Great Commission. Now, when you think of the Great Commission, the very first thing that you think about is like foreign missionaries in faraway lands, and that is part of it. Uh, I certainly don't want to steal anything away from that. But when you hear Matthew uh, 28, 
verses 18, uh, I'm sorry, verses 19 through 20, uh, the Great Commission, listen to what it has to say about discipleship. He says, go, therefore, make disciples, make disciples of all nations. And here's the evangelism part, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They hear the gospel message, they repent, they're baptized. But then look at this, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. What's another word for observe? You might have it in your, your translation. Teaching them to obey our job as Christians. Fulfilling the Great Commission is helping each other obey. Not just to teach and say, hey, I hope you like my lesson today, but to teach to obey. So when a Christian doesn't obey, what has to happen? If you see it, you're responsible for a brother. That's why verse 18, verse 15 exists. If anyone, if, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. That's why verse 15 is in there, is we all have a responsibility to teach, to obey. Now, many of you will not, you might have heard of this show that has existed long ago in a galaxy far, far away called The Andy Griffith Show. <laughs> Somebody else is old over here too. Thank you. Um, in The Andy Griffith Show, there's a man named Barney Fife who is the, the deputy. And uh, he gets deputized to help make sure that law and order are, everything is just fine in their quaint little town. Here's the deal. When we talk about royal ambassadors in here, when we talk about being an ambassador, being a representative for God, that's not just something for little boys. That's a responsibility for every Christian. You are deputized to help your brothers and sisters obey. And when obedience is not there, we are deputized to speak to them. Here's the thing that's so crazy, and I, I, have, never, I have never, believe it or not, owned a monkey. <laughs> that's not random. Um, I have had rats, and I have had mice, I have had snakes, raccoons, and possums in my garage at some point over my life, but I've never have had a monkey that is come into my garage to monkey around. But I'm, I'm told on great authority that this is a true story about how you catch a monkey. Monkeys are um, irrepressibly curious, and the way that they would catch a monkey is they would take a coconut that they've attached a chain to, some kind of um, device that you, you can't steal the coconut. And they would drill a little hole in the coconut and put something shiny and shaky, like the pop tap of a soda can. And, and monkeys are smart enough to manipulate that coconut, find that hole, see the shiny thing in there and go, ooh, shiny, I want it. And they can slip their hand into the hole. The problem is that hole is so small that once they grasp the thing that's in there, they can't pull their hand back out. And so instead of giving up this ooh, bright, shiny thing, they would rather be captured and put in a zoo than simply let go of the toy that was a trap. That's why we need accountability. Now, I'm not, the application is, is not, y'all are a bunch of monkeys. Um, that might work. Um, not that <laughs> you're a bunch of monkeys, but doesn't temptation work the same way for you? I mean, and I'm not asking for a personal testimony. That would be inappropriate. Have you ever held on to something longer than you should have and it got you in trouble? That's monkey business. That's how temptation works. And he's authorizing correction so that we can keep 
we can warn them, say, hey, listen, I know that looks good. And listen, sin looks good or it wouldn't be a temptation. We warn each other to not desire something else more than we desire God in his gospel. It could be anything that you're unwilling to let go of. It could become a sin that really becomes serious. The point here is that if God has authorized discipline and we say, nope, not interested in it, we're disobeying God. You can opt out, but then you need to opt out of discipleship as well. You're not caring enough to obey God or to rescue a brother. Point number two, God-glorifying, brother-rescuing correction agrees with God in prayer. Agrees with God in prayer. Now, when we talk about this whole process of correction, this is not you getting to pick on people based on your preferences. So, um, let me see here. I see the Kennedys sitting up on the balcony. Don't make eye contact. This, this, does not, this does not give me, when we talk about correction, this does not give me the opportunity to go up to Scott and Marion and say, listen, guys, I've got some real serious questions about your discernment. I mean, your, 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 your judgment calls on being a Clemson fan. I just think, you know, man, you've really chosen poorly. This is, not, this is not me baptizing my own preferences and correcting someone. This is dealing with, and we all deal with sin. Some of our sin, we deal with. Some of our sin, other people deal with because it's public. This is dealing with gross violations. And so I love it because he says in verse 19, whatever you agree about. And the point here is not that two people get together and agree about their own stuff agree about their own preferences. That word for agree in Greek is the word symphoneo. And it means that we are not agreeing among ourselves. We're agreeing with God. That sin is sin. That this is not right. It shouldn't be named among the people of God. We are agreeing with God, not trying to manipulate Him to agree with us. And so he's saying, this is an important thing for us to be spiritual enough to set our sights on a biblical standard not just simply our standard. When he says, if you agree on any matter, that word matter uh, comes from a very interesting word. It's the word pragma, which is where we, where we get the word pragmatism or pragmatic. And that sounds like it would be anything, any kind of pragmatic issue. Except in the New Testament, every time the word pragma is used, it's used in a judicial sense for any judicial matter. So in verse 16, he says, uh, verse 15, he says, if, you see your, if your brother sins against you, go and talk to him. If that doesn't work, you take two or three others. And then again in verse 18, it says, if two agree, he's talking about a judicial matter of uh, bringing someone to account for their sin, not anything that USC fans are better than Clemson fans. No, he's talking about sin issues that require uh, discipline. In this context, what is it that they're praying for? I think he's, they're ultimately praying for whatever has to happen to bring about the restoration of that brother. 1 Corinthians 5, just by way of illustration, there's a man who is in an incestuous relationship with his um, mother-in-law. And Paul says, you're bragging about this? You're far too indulgent. He says, there's no one-step, two-step, three-step thing. You, you turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. You come around to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and this man that had been involved in this notorious 
well-known public sin had been brought to a point of repentance. And Paul says, receive him back in gladly. And I think when he says that if the two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it'll be done for you. They're praying for someone's ultimate restoration, even if temporary discipline is necessary. God, bring him back and do what you have to do to get it done. The discipline conversation is, is never popular. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, we, we found this out because like in the first service, like I can talk about discipline and all the grandparents in the room are like, all right, yeah, a little discipline. Y'all have been so indoctrinated by <laughs> politics and liberalism that if you say the word spanking, some, one of you is going to be offended. I'll get a bad email tomorrow. You'll be like, can't believe, Pat. I thought the pastor followed the Bible. He talked about spanking. So do your head wagon. I'm ready for it. Bring it on. Um, we made the mistake of being in Walmart. And was it, Marcy, was it Chloe? Yeah, it was Chloe. I know you, Chloe, I'm so sorry. I'm about to tell a story that I didn't ask permission for. I know y'all do not believe that Chloe would do this, but she was sassing in Walmart and it was bad. And so like, we pull out, we pull out the Trump card. We're like, you're going to get a spanking when you get home. The problem is, like, we don't do telepathy, so I had to communicate the words verbally, to which every 20-something parenting expert on the aisle was like, you spank your kid? Oh, I'm calling the police. You know, it was nuts. We do discipline in the context of love and restoration. It is not child abuse. It is uh, corrective discipline. So, like, we found out, like, you say the word spanking in public, and, like, them's fighting words. That's not politically correct. So we figured out real quick, Discipline's not a good conversation. So we still decided to spank. We just called it a timeout. So fast forward about three months into a, another little Walmart thing, Chloe being sassy again, and I turn around and I go, you want a timeout? No, not a timeout, not a timeout. To which every mom in the aisle turn around and go, what do you do for your timeout? It sounds amazingly effective. <laughs> Discipline... <laughs> That was like last week, so. Um, <laughs> discipline is not a popular conversation. But I want you to understand two things that are really important, okay? If this verse is in the Bible, and I just checked, it is. If you are unwilling to do it, not only are you disobeying God, you are disbelieving the Bible. You get that? This is yes God says we're to do this. This is part of how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't do it, you are disobeying God and you are disbelieving the Bible. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah this is in the Bible. It doesn't apply to me. No, if you're a disciple, it does. Now, listen, I appreciate our hesitation. We should not be eager to do this. Should the opportunity arise? So listen, I, I think it probably happens all the time. It just happens in that you go to your brother and it, it's taken care of. It was a misunderstanding. Uh, I think 90% of the discipline we do happens in that first step. I think very little of it needs to progress because if we're spiritual and we're being corrected by someone, I know if you come to me and I've done something wrong, I will want to make things right as quickly as possible. It, it's when sin becomes a little more obstinate in our life and we're not willing to let go of the, thing in the, the shiny thing in the coconut, that then it starts to become a problem. And it needs to become a problem if you're not willing to give it up. So part of our calling 
unfortunately, is to be prophetic, not predicting the future, but calling people to accountability. We have to warn people of sin, sometimes even other believers, sometimes the people that sit on the pew right next to us. We cannot redefine sin. We cannot let it slide. We cannot grade on a curve. God's word defines what sin is, and we are going to agree with God about this. And the Bible says that when a believer is unrepentant, Jesus is willing to affirm the temporary restriction of the offer of forgiveness until they come to repentance. Point number three, God glorifying brother rescuing, because that is always the motive. We want to glorify God. We want to rescue a brother. God glorifying brother rescuing correction recognizes God's action. Recognizes God's action. Now, we think that when we hear this, that we are primarily involved and we're the, we're the main actors. But I want you to see what verse 19 says. He says, if two or three of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Who does it? God does it. God is acting in and through and perhaps even contrary to our actions. Let me ask you a question. If, if, if a man or a woman is unfaithful to their marital vows and you're unwilling to call them on the carpet, you think God suffers from the fear of man the same way you do? You think God is going to not discipline someone because you're too much of a sissy? No, God, God's action is not dependent upon us. The question is whether our testimony to that person and God's testimony to that person are going to be consistent. And so often, because we want to obey the 11th commandment, be nice. We will allow someone to suffer in their sin instead of saying, friend, listen, I'm not saying this to you. This is what the Bible says. And I've struggled with that same thing. I want to help you get back on the narrow path because it's hard. The path that's paved and it's wide and it's got the streetlights, man, that's easy and everybody's on it. But the narrow path is what we're called to do. So he's saying that God is in action related to this. I love this because in verse 18, look back at that. He says, I assure you, whatever you bind on earth, listen to this, is already bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. When it talks about God's action, the thing that is awesome here is our action merely recognizes on earth what heaven's court has already decided. We want to be in line with the scriptures. And we lie if we don't practice discipline and accountability. God's word is the judge of all of us. We want our actions to be lined up with what God's word says. So our action, according to this passage, merely recognizes on earth what's already been decided in heaven. When Jesus teaches us how to preach the model prayer, the Lord's prayer, our Father who art in heaven, there's a part of that prayer that says that we want for things on earth to be as they are in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Friends, we don't have an option to agree with God. Not if we're believers. We have to take accountability seriously. Not in a mean-spirited way. I want the full weight of all of Matthew 18. Lost sheep, 70 times 7, unmerciful servant. I want that to impact how we read verses 15 through 20. We have to do accountability, but we need 
charitable motives in that to say, this is for your good. I don't like this. I don't want to do it, but I am authorized. I agree, and God is already at work. I have to be consistent with that. Fourth and finally, God glorifying, brother rescuing correction enjoys special access to Jesus. Guys, this is why Matthew 18, 20 does not apply to every single little prayer meeting that you're a part of. It is a prayer meeting where people are deliberating a very serious issue, and that is, is there some kind of censor? Is there some kind of rebuke? Is there some kind of correction that, that we need to um, enforce upon an erring brother for the purpose of the restoration? And it's in this context that this amazing prayer that we all claim for every Bible study and prayer meeting that we go to, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Now, that two or three is awesome. That two or three means our effectiveness in prayer is not based upon how many, how many people we can pack into a room. Jesus is saying, if you, one other person besides yourself, I will hear the united prayer of humble believers who are seeking my face. That's incredible. And, and, and by derivative, that is applicable to every prayer meeting. But I want you to see he's making specific application to access to Jesus in the midst of the most difficult conversation you may ever have. How many of you want to sign up to be on the difficult conversation team? We're going to have an organizational meeting right after church. And if you want to be on the difficult conversation team, you can sign up. But yet, Jesus is promising his presence to guide your motives and your speech and your mannerism to make it effective. <clears throat> it's amazing. And it reminds us of another really difficult thing that Jesus has asked us to do in which he promises his presence. Difficult conversation, go and rebuke a brother. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in their midst. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, Jesus has only been in a little area about the size of New Hampshire. He says, hey, disciple, don't you go to the ends of the earth and spread the gospel? I only did this much, but I want you to do this much. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Guys, if you want to experience God's presence, according to Matthew 18 and according to Matthew 28, you need to do hard things for God. You need to be serious about accountability. You need to be serious about evangelism. And it's within those contexts that we may know. For some of you, you've been wise with your finances. You don't need God to pay the bills. For life as normal, status quo, you don't need God. You're going to have a difficult conversation. You know how much you need God. Now, you need God whether you realize him or not. You just kind of act like an atheist. Um, you think that you're self-sufficient. When you put yourself into a difficult situation, you are very aware of how much you need God. And here's where I think that this, this promise is so precious. <clears throat> I've stated already, this is not a conversation any of us want to be in, right? Nobody, nobody wants to have that conversation. Ideally, you are going with proper motivation, with humility of spirit, and, and, and doing this out of Christian obligation, not out of personal vengeance, you know, trying to grind somebody. You're trying to rescue. And ideally, you go with the right spirit and the right words, and they have the right spirit to receive it, and it's fixed, right? 
Isn't that, what, is, is this, isn't that what we want? Yes. Sin is so deceptive. Will that be what always happens? What will happen to that relationship? What could happen to that relationship? You know, part of it might be your fault. You've got a, you've got a guy in your Sunday school class that you work with and he cusses like a sailor and for 19 years you've never called him on the carpet and now you're going to? I mean, part of the reason it's difficult is your own hypocrisy at not taking accountability seriously, and now you're trying to do it, and now that just hasn't been a part of your relationship. It's tough to cross that bridge. And it could be that your act of correcting could cost you that friendship. Here's what Jesus is promising. He's saying in the midst of discipline, of difficult conversations, that we are promised fellowship with the Father even if those who are disciplined allow our friendship to fade. At the end of the day, have you been faithful to the friendship by warning them of what the Scriptures wants you to want? Yes, you have. They may not understand it. They may not like it. But what kind of friend will you be if you elevate friendship with them above fellowship with God? You can't make that trade. You can never make that trade. And he is promising that when we exhibit his character like a shepherd, being concerned about the lost sheep, that we will experience Jesus' unique presence to bless us and perhaps make it fruitful. But even if it's not, to be with us, to comfort and to cheer and to bless our efforts. Here's what I love. When he talks about this whole process of two or three witnesses in the Old Testament, the two and three witnesses were very important because the two or three witnesses were the first people to cast stones when a judgment was made that a person needed to be stoned to death. I hope nobody wants to sign up to be a part of that team either. I certainly wouldn't. But do you see the difference that living on this side of the cross makes? That where the two or three witnesses in the Old Testament were judge, jury, and executioner, because our execution was focused upon Christ, on this side of the cross, the two or three witnesses are for the purpose of restoration, reconciliation, and forgiveness, not judgment. That's an amazing thing. As a matter of fact, your private sin that somebody comes and, and rebukes you for, if you don't repent, then God enrolls more people to try to win you back, two or three. And if the two or three don't work, guess what? You take it to the church, and God will recruit an entire army to try to win you back. If you won't listen to one shepherd, maybe you'll listen to two or three. And if you won't listen to two or three, maybe you'll listen to 400. Maybe you'll go, well, maybe I'm not right. Maybe the 400 of them are. Maybe you'll come to your senses. But God is so concerned about us taking our discipleship seriously that he'll do it. And he asks us to balance truthfulness with grace. That's hard. If you give grace without truth, you're a hypocrite. If you, I'm sorry, if you give grace without truth, you're a hypocrite. If you give truth without grace, you're brutal. You need to balance both. But Jesus promises by his presence that he will help us in that challenging conversation to preserve the faith of a brother, to maintain the testimony of the church, and to build us up together for the glory of God. In the old, <clears throat> I'm sorry, in the Bible, you guys are familiar with what the greatest commandment is, right? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. How does this apply to discipline? How does this apply to accountability? If you are unwilling to do the hard work of accountability, you are ultimately proving that you don't love God above all. You're not willing to do what he says. And you're ultimately proving that you don't love your neighbor. So the question for you is, do you love God enough? And do you love neighbor enough to be willing to hold someone accountable and to be accountable yourself? Pray with me, please. Father, we are very mindful of how much we need your grace to um, walk the pilgrim walk that you have called us to. Father, I need accountability, and every single one of my brothers and sisters in here need accountability. Give us integrity in how we follow you. To ask a brother or sister, brother, Sister, you know me. Will you call me on the carpet if I get off the tracks? Help us to apply this to our own life as we, in our best moments, want to follow you faithfully. And in our worst moments, kind of act like we don't even know you. Help us to be a church that redemptively loves God and loves neighbor enough to have hard conversations both directed at us and for us to be willing to have hard conversations with our brothers and sisters that we love, that you have died to ransom from their sin. We pray that you will do this in all.